Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Connect This. Last week was uh, the first time I just started off with a simple howdy, and it got such a good reaction from Kim and Travis, I thought I'd start that again. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have a really fun show today. Uh, we have two uh, first-time guests, um, two people that I think uh, uh, very highly of in terms of, um, of both their experience and their ability to give and take and have a fun conversation. Uh, so let's just roll into to talking um, about who's here. Um, I'll start off with Heather Gold, who is with HBG Strategies. Um, can I go ahead and guess your middle name? It starts with a B, Heather? Yes, Burnett. <laughs> you know, and I actually knew that. So Heather and I met when you were at the Fiber to the Home Council, I think. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, for North America and um, or for the Americas, I guess. Is that right? Yes, for the Americas. So what is HB, what's HBG strategies? Doing. What are we doing? Well, yeah. we're, doing a, we're doing a lot of broadband education, um, market visibility work for different companies. But, you know, working a lot with people at like at broadband communities or vendors or communities that need more information about broadband and how to reach out. I don't personally know enough to be an engineer and teach them that stuff, but I know who knows. So my job is to connect them with the people that have the answers to what they know. And I think given my background as association executive, that's the ideal job for me. I'm in a similar position, but I tend not to admit it publicly. Oh. <laughs> so we, we also have uh, Milo Medin joining us. Milo is a former vice president of wireless services um, at Google um, and, uh, and a, a person who um, has just I, everyone seems to know behind the scenes. But I think like he's just you're so quiet, Milo, that people who have been doing this work for five years might not know who you are. So um, welcome to the show. I'm excited that you could join us. Well, Chris, it's great uh, to be there, to be here. Uh, it's been fun to catch up with you over the years and uh, and always fun. And uh, conversations always learn something uh, as well. So it's great. So now let me let me see if I got this right. And you can you can correct me gently or not as you wish. But but um, you know, more than 10 years ago, uh, someone at Google, one of the one of the founders, I think, said, we need to do something about the broadband stuff. And they went off and said, we're going to do open access fiber and we're going to change the whole landscape. And then they they they're like, who could we have run this? And they brought you in and you said, OK. That's a, it's a great idea, but like, why don't we do something that I think would work? <laughs> well, so. you know, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, companies go through different phases. Uh, yeah, I came to Google back in December of 2010 um, to uh, uh, lead the fiber program. And at that time, there was uh, a competition that they had decided to try and run to go recruit cities, right, to see who would be interested in a test network. Um, and, you know, uh, I think there was, you could do better than that in terms of building a real business and, and, um, trying to build, uh, fiber infrastructure in a different way. If you remember at the time, I think the mean speed that my friends in the cable, uh, companies were offering were about 10 megabits per second. Uh, and I was, you know, um, you know, I helped build Oxus. I was the founder of a company called at home network. So. Uh, I know a lot about the HFC network because we work with Comcast and Charter and, uh, and they're called something else at the time at TCI and all those all those folks uh, to go build uh, cable uh, broadband service. And so, you know, uh, working in a field, trying to go compete with something you've built before is always a lot of fun. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, so we um, decided to try and actually make that be a product. Uh, Larry uh, has always been, Larry Page, was always very uh, focused on connectivity as one of the sort of main uh, obstacles to consumption of internet and, and data. And so um, Google's been, you know, wanted to go do something in, in that space. I led that program for a while and he was on my case about wireless. Like, why aren't we doing more on the wireless side? So they uh, backfilled for me on the on the fiber side and I uh, have run wireless services until December 1 when I left Google after not quite 11 years. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a much bigger company today. It's a great company. Some of the smartest people you will find uh, work there. Um, but I thought it would be more fun to do something uh, at a little bit smaller uh, place than 180,000 people. Sure. Yes. And, um, and I sort of, I wanted to just sort of get at that, that open access issue because I feel like it can both be true that I'm a huge proponent of open access and also recognize that it might not be the right approach for a company like Google. So, um, I, I, you know, I would just say, and this may be a somewhat controversial statement, but uh, one of the problems that you have with an open access system is what's the product? So if you want to work with cities, if you want to work with people that are um, to help access to rights of way, et cetera, and you say, here's what you get. You're, this is what your city will have. They go, well, what's the product? And well, depends on what people want to offer. <laughs> what exactly does that mean, right? Um, and, and so um, if you want cooperation, if you want to have people be excited, if you want you know, folks to, to have impact in a community, see the impact, you have to talk about, well, what is the product? So is it gigabit? Is it, you know, what's the price? And so the problem with the open access model is um, the people who are trying to build the network can't speak to the product that will be offered. And so un until you can actually have some real product offerings that people can see, yeah, this is what makes my community more competitive. This is what will happen to education in my community. Mm -hmm. um, they're, people are not just engineers. I want glass is great. Of course, fiber is great. Uh, but like at what price and at what speed and, and, and what, what can I do with it, right? So I think that's a real challenge if you want to do something creative when it comes to construction. For commodity, sure. But that's broadband is, is not really a commodity in the U.S., as you probably have noticed. I, I think um, the example we've seen that have been um, successful is if the is which would be contrary to what Google wanted is when the community actually owns the, the fiber. And so what they're selling Milo is they know how to construct and build sure. infrastructure. And you see that a lot with um, public utilities and they can advocate to their citizens, hey, this is something we know. Mm -hmm. Running a telecom service is not what we know. And um, Chris and I have talked about this a lot. and. Chris, tell me if I'm going down a rat hole here, but the, the main challenge I think to open access is not necessarily who builds and owns the infrastructure because you can dictate, we're putting enough infrastructure out there that we expect every ISP on this network to offer a minimum of a gigabit. The problem is having enough subscribers in a given community to make it a profitable um, offering for any ISP that wants to join. Yeah. Uh, 
I well, think let me, yeah. I mean, this is something we can definitely come back to. Um, I want to I want to introduce Travis, um, but let me just finish <clears throat> off that thought, Heather. Um, I agree with what you just said. In particular, I, I try to explain it to people in the media like this. Um, open access um, can be great. The challenge can be if it has to pay entirely for itself. And you can imagine the problem such that it is difficult to build a fiber network where you take 100% of the revenue and apply it to your costs. Open access doesn't give you 100% of the no. revenue to apply right. to your costs. Yeah, so of course, it's going to be more difficult um, under that model. Uh, so Travis, um, man about town, apparently, um, you know, you're not frozen out. Uh, you're going to you're gonna go oh, uh, leave your home for dinner. Well, <clears throat> so I guess it's time to ask the question that both Milo and Heather are afraid to ask. Did I win the bet from last I year? I told you it's I in bet? February. Oh, it's in February. <laughs> I need to look at our I didn't look at our February shows. Right, For some right, reason, right. like February right. 20 is in my head. I wanted to know and, so, and just what was the bet again, just so I'm clear yeah. on what I'm gonna win. So one year ago, um, Milo and Heather, on, on a show that we were doing, I believe with um, with uh, Doug Dawson and Kim McKinley, um, you know, the president had been inaugurated. It was, uh, it was a new it was a new era. COVID was vanquished. Uh, life was starting afresh. And I made a bet with Travis that um, one year from that day, it was inconceivable to me that the federal broadband definition would remain at 25 megabits down, three megabits up. Because if anything else, the Biden administration, the very first thing that they would do would be to update that definition. Um, what I didn't oh, count on was- Barry, uh, he was a little on the cocky side on this one too. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie, right? I mean, he, uh, you know, one year. And uh, so, so to give you a little bit more data, every time Chris and I have dinner uh, for the last five or six years, generally chicken wings, I pay. So for the next year- free chicken wings are coming my way. Yeah, I yep. think that's pretty um You know you don't think they're going to do it in the next 2 weeks? <laughs> no, and, and and you know, I mean again, look, I think not trying to be political, but when it takes a year to pick, almost a year to pick who the FCC the person we all knew was going to be picked <laughs> and you know, and put an NTIA head in place. Right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's clear the administration doesn't really prioritize broadband or telecom. I, I mean, they just in terms of the the people they pick to go lead things and make decisions. And so, you know, I mean, and and right now the FCC, I think, is still stuck to two. So that's you know, correct. Yeah. Yeah. For another another maybe week or two, hopefully. I don't know how fast the the floor vote or not the floor vote. We don't know when the floor vote would be, but I believe Gigi will be getting out of committee this month. Oh, wow. Heather, were you going to say something? Well, I think the administration and Milo's right. They were so slow out of the gate getting these key um, executives in place. But the fortunately, the legislative branch has sort of moved beyond us and the Treasury has moved beyond the FCC. I think if I would say one thing, I think the FCC looks really sleepy now. I mean, they're sort of behind the eight ball on speeds, money. Yeah, if it wasn't for how terribly the FAA is run, the FCC would look like a pretty bad agency. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, you could just generalize that to transport in general. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could talk about, you know, 5G and C-band if you if you want as well. But uh, I would just say one thing uh, they they did name uh, nominate Alan Davidson, who's um, I used been to confirmed now, I believe, and seated. Yes. And I think he's confirmed now. 
yeah. um, he's a good guy. And I, th you know, I think at least based on my experience with him many years ago, I think he will want to try and advance the ball. But, you know, if you look at this bill, 100 down, 20 up, you know, this sort of uh, building yesterday's network tomorrow, you know. Is so you're I talking about the infrastructure bill. That. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, if, if you think we're talking about infrastructure, like things that last 20 years, 100 down, you know, it's like, you're spending, yeah, I guess NTA has 42 billion of that. Of the sixty for that, I you think know, no. Uh, correct I'm me that I'm wrong. Get 120, 100 down, twenty up. No, I think anything you build has to be scalable to one hundred, one hundred. It's hundred down, twenty up. Is if you do not have that, then you're um, more likely to be qualified for areas to be invested in. Right. 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 You're Great. So, so Milo, is that a copyrighted statement, or can I steal that? Because that's uh, hilarious. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think you can steal that. Okay, wow, that's that is fabulous, Chris. You know what you're going to be hearing every week from now on. Building. I, I don't actually think it's original. I heard it somewhere else, so I don't don't okay. don't don't claim that I came up with it. It's uh, I'm pretty sure I heard it. it no one's ever said it before. We're breaking news here um, on the show. <laughs> um, Henry, I think we're ready to just do a little. The the, the we're going to come back to telecom peekaboo. I, I've selected a photo from my vast library of of interesting things. Um, I probably should have zoomed in some on it. Um, this is a poll. Uh, I believe Travis, that this is from the fairgrounds. Uh, and so, uh, our, our, our friend Ryan Coleman may actually have been involved with, uh, with this. Um, mm. and, uh, I believe this was, um, I'm gonna, I, I assume that this was, um, you know, connectivity. I believe it was during the winter carnival where they had a bunch of snow sculptures out there. And this was to make sure cars might have Wi-Fi. I'm guessing. Does anyone recognize those pieces of gear? Heather, Milo, take a stab at it. I have a guess. Milo, you're the wireless girl. Uh, well, I mean, they could be, um, it, it could either be wisp style gear or it could be um, cellular uh, base stations, right? Just uh, uh, things like that. Um, it looks Boy, our outside plant is really nasty. Um, but, you know, um, yeah, that, that doesn't look like the angles look like it's. It it's probably, I want to say, 20 feet off the ground. Yeah. You can tell by the trees, maybe even 15. Uh, the question is what's lower on the pole, right? Because if those are the. the yeah, there's six of them. You know, if there's not, if there's not. You know, sort of what's what do those all things plug into? If it's, uh, my photo it's standalone things and it's not cellular, it's probably Wi-Fi or some yeah. network or something like that. I don't see any extra power there. Yeah, so that's probably it's probably some kind of Wi-Fi. It's not ubiquity or or something more common. Travis, anything to add? Hmm, I might actually because just the way the I might go Daz is what I might go. So mm -hmm. who, we need to find out because look, look at, you've got like four, you've got six connections coming out of the bottom of each one. But yeah, that's what, what I was curious about. Like why, if we knew, why the, if we knew what the other end was, it might be helpful. Yeah. But usually, you know, I don't see, so I don't see any orange. So it looks like, looks like cat five or ethernet that's coming. Oh, there's yeah. some orange there. Okay. Yeah. That could be fiber. Well, this you might have stumped us for the first time, Chris. Where is this at? At the fairgrounds? Yeah. This was uh, last year. 
So can you zoom in even more on that little panel? That little yeah. Downward and to the left. The little right yeah, there. There's some writing there. I can't remember. You could pick up a brain. You can oh, we need the enhance button. I don't know if we have the enhance button on this package. Hmm. <laughs> it's fun stuff. Right. I'm going cellular DAS. There's three of them. They're directional. They've got the other end. I'm going to guess there's a cabinet down below that all of this connects into. But I if, think there's no if there's no cabinet, though, I didn't see. I don't know. There, does it? Is there? Can you tell there's a cabinet below that? But all home runs to something, right? So, yeah, that's the question. All right, so I think we're going to have to take this one, and we're going to have to go over there and see what it is. I can ask. Uh, I'll ask the person at the fairgrounds who's okay. in charge of all the tech, and he'll probably just know immediately what it was and who was responsible yeah, that, for it. That, that, that's a good one. That's our yeah. uh, that's a yeah, stumper. That's... That's a good one this week. Cool. Also, someone might write in. Um, for anyone who's listening, uh, definitely feel free to send us uh, a comment, and uh, we will work it into the show, um, most likely. Um, if it's oh. terrible, then we'll make fun of you and not work it into the show. Um, <laughs> so let's let's talk about uh, the the federal the the broadband funding programs. I'm curious, and and Heather, I'll start with you. Um, uh, I feel like the wireless folks are um, feel that they, um, you know, the fiber guys won this one. That um, the programs are well designed from a perspective of making sure that we're building fiber. Uh, a lot of preferences uh, for high speeds, even an outright right. call encouraging states to do fiber. Um, did Congress get this one right? I I would hesitate to ever say that Congress got something <laughs> right, but you know, as right as they were going to get it, it's certainly a lot better than the Telecom Act of '96. That's for sure. But um, it is very encouraging. I, I'm a little bit nervous about giving all that money to the states, particularly the states that don't have an effing clue how to run a pro broadband program. But um, I'm sure that'll all sort out. Um, yeah, I think they did get it right. I mean, we've been, obviously, I've been on the side that's been wanting to get fiber, more fiber deployed. And even with all of the fancy 5G going out, we know that needs more fiber. So um, I think I think it really does encourage more fiber. And to Milo's point where the speed is is basically the speed below which you can you're deemed underserved, at least the good thing we know about fiber is it's it's pretty stretchable. Um, you know, you can increase the capacity pretty easily. So I don't think we're, it's not like past programs where we're sort of um, putting people in jail for 10 years if they sign up with a certain carrier because they have no hope of anything um, beyond DSL. So I, I think that's, that's the good news. And the other good news is the encouragement of a lot of new entrants in the market. Now we'll see how that works out with the financial um, reviews, but it does seem like they're really pushing governments and nonprofit entities, to cooperatives, be involved, cooperatives to be involved, mm -hmm. which I think is a great is great news because we've been so constrained on on opening up the market. Excellent. So Milo, um, your thoughts on it? Um, a lot will depend on what rules. Um, are established, right? And so part of that goes back to the details and um, encouragements, et cetera, are less reasonable than, or, or less important than actually what the rules are for applying and what's the process. And 
Uh, obviously, you have to start with broadband mapping. And if you don't have a good understanding of what areas are served or what is it, then you could get into a period of litigation or could or, or at least a lot of delays in terms of, well, where can you actually spend money? Right. Um, what areas serve, what area is not served? Um, there's a broader problem, I think, um, which is, um, you know, infrastructure is a business where um, it's like a jet engine. You advance the throttles, but the engine doesn't spool up right away. And so I think there are two main issues with trying to build a ton of fiber. Uh, one of them is supply chain. Um, the amount of fiber out there is so fiber supply is is not adequate to deal right now with the substantial increase. Part of the problem for that is uh, global um, global demand. So at, my data is a little about a year old, but um, uh, as of end of 2020, uh, China had something on the order of 424 million fiber to the home customers, not passings, customers. Right. Because they the built rapidly. The rest of the world combined is about 120 million. So if you just look at fiber supply chains, right, and all, all the rest of that, um, uh, you've got yourself a situation where all of a sudden, if you end up with a bunch of people now ordering fiber on the spot market without having put in place long term commitments or aggregated buying, um, you're going to end up with prices going through the roof, right? Because you can't, you can't get at enough of it. Um, and, um, then there's another problem, which is labor, you know, splicers and all the rest of that. That's there are schools where you can go do that, but you know, the great resignation and a whole set of other problems with the labor force, if you can't get splicers, you can't get fiber techs. Um, I mean, it's not like four year stuff, but if you were really like, if you were an engineer and you were looking at this and you said, hey, I want to really pave the way for an advanced infrastructure in the United States on fiber, I would have put in place aggregated supply chain, getting more domestic production of, of uh, fiber optic cable assemblies, et cetera, um, putting in place education and incentives to get job training programs and generate a workforce that can go out and actually do this. Because the worst thing that you could do is punt a dump a boatload of money in and then have a bunch of people bidding all with a constrained supply chain because all you're going to do is spend a massive amount of money and not be able to build much right. yeah, so let me that, i'm gonna this is a great advertising moment um two weeks from today <laughs> it looks like we are going to have on um two isps um uh, who are both rapidly scaling up and doing more i know travis has been scaling up and so uh we're going to go deep on this subject of how does one scale up as a private company in these um, situations so uh, that is to come heather you, you wanted to jump in yeah i mean i have been um talking to a lot of people that are looking to beef up their education. Um, Milo, a good friend of mine, runs a post-secondary um, educational institute here in Virginia that does more technical training and actually has the physical, you know, they have a pole and all the, the field you can rip yep. up, put in lines and stuff like that. And it's been incredibly difficult to find people that will come in and teach yeah. let alone come in and learn 
Um, so I agree with you. I think the supply chain and especially some of the smaller entities, which they hope to get in the market, may not have access to these um, buying consortiums that are going to pretty much monopolize the supply. I agree. So fiber supply chain and labor issues are a big problem. Yeah. I think about a year ago or maybe six months ago, I, I read a deal. My friends at AT&T had uh you know, kind of deal with Corning, where Corning would spool up a new plant to build um, build more fiber and their integrated assemblies. Um, and so, if if you come into the market without any aggregation of demand, and you have to compete only on the spot market for fiber supply, and remember, it's the global markets, and there's big sucking sound in China because they're not done with their fiber deployment. No. They are still no got the 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 pedal down to the metal uh you're going to end up with a lot of problems and so this is the kind of thing where you know that could have been handled as part of the legislation uh sooner uh creating incentives uh etc and i you know but again you know that we had infrastructure week every week for an entire presidency milo they didn't get around to it i'm sorry (laughs) yeah (laughs) Zing! <laughs> I just had to get that because Travis will be digging me later from the other direction. Um, Travis, any? I, I don't want to spend a lot. I think like, there's a lot of things we can discuss. This is something that um, that we know we're going to be talking about more, so you don't have to, you know, um, uh, empty both barrels. But uh, any any quick thoughts? Well, I mean, I think it's it's a real issue. The the third leg of that stool is rate increase or on on product and material. Just in the, in the last year alone, it's between thirty and fifty percent for your cost for your uh, for fiber splice vaults hand holes duct uh it, it's just it's 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 crazy i i'm not really sure how anybody especially a small player puts together a realistic financial model looking out much past the next 30 or 90 days and and for us we're already placing orders for 2024 and i then i got a call next week with a vendor for some product that we're placing out to 2025 Wow. And you just, you, you have to, but the, the, the biggest thing that I've learned from the distributors is they're not taking a lot of new customers. They're just trying to keep the customers that they have happy. So if you're a new entrance in the market, I think to, and you're buying out on the spot, you know, like you said, the spot market, I mean, it's, it's going to be very challenging. Now, Travis, you keep trying to get me to build the network. So uh, you just trying to, trying to get me to throw my life away here. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I want you to learn the real pain out here, <laughs> right? <laughs> the reality, you know, when you're trying to keep your bank, your debtors happy and God forbid these people that sign up for federal money, the, the what they're going to have to deal with. Um, it, it, there, there's, there's a bumpy road ahead. Let's put it that way. So at the same time, we now see Verizon talking about $25 uh, a month for uh, for the uh, fixed wireless. Um, I don't know if it's always 5G, wherever they're going to be doing it, but uh, they seem to be making a bid there. And I'm, I'm curious, Milo and Heather, as we do see wireless moving um, perhaps more aggressively in some of these areas, is, is that going to gobble up large chunks or small chunks? Does it matter? You still have to have the fiber. To do the backhaul, so I don't, I don't see it as. I mean, it might be a, a good, you know, drop play, but um, I, I just don't see it as undermining too much 
some of the supply chain issues that Milo was talking about. And in fact, we'll have different, um, different labor issues for deployment of the wireless network. So either way, you're facing constraints. Well, I would just say um, you're going to see some amount of, of fiber being deployed by ATT and Verizon uh, as part of their trying to go build their C-band infrastructure, assuming this FAA issue can be <laughs> sort of navigated. Um, but, you know, Verizon's basically said they're putting their C-band stuff on top of existing macro cell sites. So there's not a whole lot of sites uh, involved there. And, you know, one of the things when you talk about rural, it's probably useful to step back a little bit uh, from an engineering perspective, right? Um, rural, there's three, my view is there's three kinds of rural in America. There's the rural that's outside a metropolitan DMA, like seven miles from the Google campus in Mountain View, you're out and there's no broadband available, right? You're, but you're close to a bunch of facility, but you're not, it's not available. It's not been deployed. Um, there are small towns where you've got reasonable density in a small cluster, right? But they're often not, an old cable system, but they're not necessarily interconnected. They don't have good, um, what we, you would used to call intralata fiber, um, in a, for backhaul and, um, and the density sort of tails off pretty quickly when you, when you get out of town. And then you've got folks who are like 20 miles from nowhere, right? That latter amount is actually very small, right? So what when when i was at google we had we have great geospatial data and we built a prop model system that allowed you to lever that geospatial data and do automatic planning for for uh wireless both fixed wireless as well as cellular systems and in fact we used that um for uh several years i was uh served on a uh board and a federal advisory board to the Secretary of Defense called the Defense Innovation Board. We put out a report on 5G at the request of the Secretary of Defense back um, back in April of 19. And one of the things we did, we levered all that and computed, well, how many base stations do you need to get coverage and what speeds and, and all the rest? Uh, it's a great report. The unclassified version is available um, uh, for download uh, and it's a good read. Uh, it's not meant to be a general policy document. It's meant to be read by the sec def, but um, the classified version is much more interesting. If you're, <laughs> your listeners, I'm going to go get that classification right after the call. Adams, they should go get the DIB 5G classified version. Um, but, you know, one of the things is if you actually um, use cellular, um, you're not going to get a whole lot of population covered depending on what speed. And so one of the problems with a, what I would think of as a monolithic definition of peak speed of 120, right? Or even 100, 100 is it doesn't really, you know, is that at two in the morning? Is that, you know, it's because when you put these systems under load and certainly one of the things that people have seen with the T-Mobile fixed service is, you know, when the mobile network is not, is not busy, well, performance can be okay. But then when the mobile network gets busy, the monetization of mobile data is far higher than the monetization of fixed. So if you just think about how much money you pay for a gigabyte on the mobile side versus what you would typically use in a fixed scenario, 
they have way more money, right? So they're, the carriers will always prioritize mobility users off common infrastructure. Now, if you're using stuff that's not aimed at mobile, but really optimized for fixed, you can do amazing things with fixed wireless, right? And, and if you put that on existing macro cell sites, we did some other analysis in the case, you could you get a lot of rural America covered at reasonable speeds, but you have to have access to spectrum. You have to be able to um, um, uh, get on people's roofs, et cetera, to do installs, et cetera. So I think fixed wireless can be really quite compelling. I'm not so hot on the success, the potential success of mobile guys trying to sell part of their mobile network to deliver fixed broadband, particularly in a model where because of COVID, we have a lot of people working from home. So the traditional peak load where I, I move, nobody's at home, you know, uh, during the day and they all are at night when 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 people are not out, uh, those kind of models have really changed substantially. One of the things that I've believed is that the future of wireless along those lines, Milo, like from a point of view of high quality connectivity, and like if I was to think about where is wireless going to be really um, effective in the future, I feel like it's going to be in more urban areas, competing with cable, being the second option in an area, as opposed to being the first option in a rural area. And I felt government policy should be trying to get a high quality wire out to everyone and then letting wireless provide some of that competition that I think we need in the market. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that. That's sort of how I've seen things likely to go. I mean, I think... Um, there is only one network, and that's the wired network. We just use a little bit of wireless at the end, whether it's Wi-Fi right. in your house or cellular, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or worse yet, you know, sort of macro cell um, bandwidth. But there is really only one network, uh, and that's the wired network. So we're only talking about a matter of degree. And if you don't have good fiber distribution in a city or in a county or in a state, um, you're not going to have good wired or wireless. I mean, that's just the physics of it, right? Because the wire, you're not going tens of miles uh, with with high capacity on wireless today. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the real challenge. And, and, um, and, you know, we don't have a particularly good story here in the United States, at least compared to many other countries. Now, Heather, when you're dealing directly with local governments, um, are you still see this issue where they're wrestling with different technologies or do they feel, I, are they I have to say the only benefit of the pandemic is that you don't hear that anymore. They all know that mobile hotspots or any of that garbage is not going to do it for them, that they need to be connected um, or they need to have, as Milo said, the wires as close as possible. I mean, you know, if they can get, um, good connectivity in their house because they're close to fiber. Um, I think all of that has gone away with the with the pandemic. Everybody understands that they really need good throughput, and um, their the demand for fiber is, and that's one of the pushes, right? The one of the reasons that we're seeing such demand right now when people haven't even started deploying the federal funds, um, and every community. I don't think is I don't think communities are are doing this anymore of should we wait for 5G because they realize they got hose waiting and 
and now they're all worried it's just not going to be enough. So I, I don't see that as a big issue anymore. Well, I'm I, I would to hear push that. Back, uh, I'll, I'll push back a little bit about that. And, and the reason I say that is um, if you look at the networks, right, one of the things that was interesting in the pandemic because the move to video conferencing, Zoom and, 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 and all of this, right, uh, early in the pandemic, the networks were melting. And then what happened is all of the video conferencing providers, et cetera, had to make changes to deal with the limited DOCSIS upstream. And so the lesson from that is you're not going to get really a mass market product that requires a high performance upstream because there's really not that much of America that can take advantage of it. But you no build a product that nobody would want to buy. Right. Nobody wants to go build a service that very few people can effectively take. And so all of the applications had to constrain their use of network bandwidth to adapt to that. That coupled with the MSOs putting in place some additional remedies, et cetera. But if you just look at market share and you look at cable broadband market share and take rates, um, I, you know, I don't think they're worrying about it, about fiber. And like in my area, we, we have ATTs built out fiber in, in my area. And, you know, they tend not, at least in, in every part of California I've visited lately, they don't build underground. So you can count how many people are taking the fiber by looking at the taps. Yeah, I mean, Travis can, does that in the alleys. You can just count. <laughs> and it's not, you know, take rates are not that great. I mean, part of the challenge is many of the operators who build fiber networks have not done much to differentiate their product. The Wall yeah. Street analysts, I think, assume a 40% maximum take rate among the the Fios, the Frontier service, the AT&T service. Um, from what I've read, I don't read a ton of them, but uh, they seem to assume about a 40% maximum take rate. And we do not see that among the small private companies or the municipal companies or the cooperatives. Often the cooperatives are the only game in town, but but it's an interesting distinction, I think. You mean you don't see it because they all get higher take rates? Right. They might hit, it might be like two or three years to hit 40%, but then, you know, they're 43%, 44%, 46%. Like they just, they don't stop growing. They, but, I, but don't you think some of that is often they're the only high speed? Right. And, and no, that's, that's the thing. I mean, like this, Travis sees this, right? I mean, like you're, 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 the take rates in your neighborhoods that you serve first are still increasing. Yeah, so our neighborhoods that we've been in for in the early years are over 70% take rate. But it, it you know, it gets to be less and less about the technology and more and right. more the customer service. Right, exactly. Do, do you answer the telephone if somebody has a problem and we roll a truck out and fix the problem within 30 minutes? You know, if the, it, it, is it stable? Has the neighbor's internet hasn't gone down for eight years? You know, those are the things that start resonating. And now that there's really decent streaming television options where you don't have to do right. classic linear television. And I also hate to say this as people age out and they sell their homes and, you know, move to Florida or whatever, you know, when the younger people move in, they immediately, they'll move to the area specifically for high speed and high quality right. broadband. Right. And that, you know, we, we talked to the realtors in the area and that's number one. I mean, quite frankly, when I move, you know, when I move out of Minnesota, I want sun and broadband. That's it. Everything yep. else. Hell, I'll no, go down. No, and 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 water. Travis, there is and so much sun out there right now today. And good caffeine. Come on, yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warm, warm sun though, Chris. Not this negative sun we have. Yeah. So, I want to. So, I want to address the question in the chat, Travis. After you go ahead and finish. 
Yeah, so so I guess I'm with you. We don't see any. We've been trying to figure out what is the maximum rate in some of these areas, and and after 12 years, we're still not there. But I think it's a lot. The technology is solid, and the customer experience is solid. That's you know they go hand in hand. Travis, Hiawatha O'Brien said they got up to like 65 percent in some of the rural communities. I mean, look, uh, I'll give you a, uh, a funny story. Um, in the at-home days, right, we were building cable broadband. Um, in North America, what city had the highest take rate after after two years? NFL city? Take No, any city. What, any what city. city do you think had the highest take rate for broadband? This was in the early days. Boy, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I would assume, um, you know, sort of like a city with a lot of young people, um, you know, and techies, etc. Yeah, yeah so I would think like Vegas or um, Miami. I mean, you know, obviously places in California sort of come to mind, but right. no, Fort McMurray, Alberta, which was a uranium mining town north <laughs> of the Arctic Circle, because there was nothing to do there. Outside, Fort Murray, Alberta. I don't even know where that's. Oh God, way the heck up there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, you have nothing else. To do. Broadband in a liquor store. I mean, there you go. I mean, so it that. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you're. It's a competition for time and a competition for uh, what. What do you do, right, uh, with your time if you can't go outside? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're dependent on your internet connection for everything, right? In yeah. the early days, right? We didn't have a whole set of these uh, sort of broad independent services today. And, and so I think that goes back to the issue of if you've got a rural community uh, and 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 you, you don't have access to certain things locally, you're going to be much more dependent on your network connectivity. Right. It's going to be much more core to you. The way I like to put it is the price for being disconnected has never been higher. Right. Uh, so I think, um, and that's part, and you see that in terms of at least the intent and desire on, on trying to uh, fix the connectivity gaps uh, in the United States. Um, but I, 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 I do think, you know, for your, for your viewers, go, go out and count count the drops off the fiber taps and many of the larger companies have not been that successful at pulling uh, customers from the cable guys. And but, but um, to, Travis, to Travis's point, and I live in a community that's new. So I had, I mean, new relatively, it's less than 15 years old. So I have conduit. Such a good I, age joke in there. I'm not, I'm just going to, not going to take yeah, it. Don't, don't go there. <laughs> You're already in deep shit with me over the last comment you made. Um, <laughs> So, you know, my house has gone, the previous owner went through some sort of metamorphosis. First, they had direct TV, there was an antenna on the roof, then they went to Comcast, and then finally they went to Fios, and I wasn't changing from that. But so I've had choices, and I have a choice, but it's interesting to hear the neighbors talk. And the only thing that Comcast offers, they have horrible customer service as always. I sh- am I going to get sued for saying this? No. Their customer service is alleged not to be great. Um, people are saying. People are saying. Thank yeah. you. But um, and I've never had a problem with Verizon. But one of the things you know what they have, Milo, that Verizon doesn't have Peacock, so you can watch Yellowstone without paying for it. I mean, that's been one of the big draws this 
winter. You know, you say people need to have things to do. Um, it was the hot streamer this winter. But, um, you know, that's the interesting thing. What is the quality that will pull you into one provider versus another when you have choice? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and it's so it's a it's a complicated thing. I, I think thinking about a business where you're trying to differentiate only on your technology's raw performance is probably not going to help you well against competing against a you know um, a cable operator who has um, you know um, relatively good infrastructure, and so you have to think about you know how do I do CDN co-locations. One of the things we did in, in, in Google with, with fiber, right? We put, we made sure major streamers were in inner directly attached to the fiber distribution system in every city. So you're literally two milliseconds away from, um, uh, from the content server. Uh, people thought the video quality was outstanding because of the fiber had not, didn't actually have anything to do with it. It had to do with the co-location of the CDNs for Netflix and YouTube and, Hulu and all the others. So there are things like that that you can do to improve service, right? And then I think also it's not just about getting speed to the home, it's about getting speed through the home. And how do you do that right. and deliver that? Mm -hmm. that? Because if, if you're ending up being bottlenecked um, inside the home, the user is not going to see an appreciable difference in performance. And so it's really, you have to think about it from a system perspective. And, um, and, and I think I, all of this, none of this kind of conversation gets brought up when we're talking about government programs or bills or, or the rest of it. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, if you're building an area that has no choice, well, that's, a, you know, maybe you can get away with that. And, but, and I, but don't you think that's primary? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of talk about, um, adoption and digital equity in the urban areas. And Chris may be right. That may be the area we encourage more fiber as the last mile um, alternative. But the real focus is getting infrastructure into these areas that don't have it today, or they have such a miserable low throughput that it's almost like not having it. Well, um, I want to I, I jump I think in. that's the focus. It, I think it is. I also think, you know, you made a comment about Comcast and I'll say, I feel like they've upped their game a lot. Um, yeah, I, 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 I noted this on, on Twitter. My parents moved recently into an area with Comcast. Um, their customer service was terrific. And the gateway modem that they're providing was great. And then when my parents needed one, because they wanted to have the gateway in the basement, um, and it's kind of an interesting open house, but they still you know, all the way on the other side of the house didn't work well. Comcast was like, here's a, you know, here's a satellite. Um, just um, people that are assuming it's going to be easy to compete against Comcast. I, I wouldn't make that assumption. Forever. Oh, yeah, no, um, no. And that's where, and I think, you know, there's not just one thing that will work against them, right? Because like you said, for one group of people, it's Peacock. For another group of people, it's maybe their only other option is a company they will never do business with again. Um, you know, Quest, when I graduated from college and I sent my resume out to a bunch of places, I moved and Quest turned my phone off for a week. You know, they just screwed it up. And, uh, and I had to go to a, every day to a phone booth to try and like resolve it. Cause like nobody could call me. 
<laughs> about the jobs I was trying to get because I didn't have a phone thanks to Quest's ineptitude. So like that long lingered with us for a while in terms of whether we went into do business with them again. Um, you know, for other people, it's a whole host of other weird little things. Um, the number of Wi-Fi access points. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but I want to I want to ask. I want to. This is a question that I'm I'm dying to hear. You know, Milo in particular, and I don't know if Travis, if you've given more thought to it, but this Tirana fixed wireless is back. And um, this is something that I've heard about in, mm. in my mind in operating in the unlicensed spectrum in particular. Um, this is sort of the new 5G thing. It's actually like I'm seeing this more. I mean, when I started, it was you don't need you don't need fiber. We got Wi-Fi and then it was LTE. No, no, no. Then it was WiMAX and then it was 4G and then it was, you know, 4G LTE and then it was 5G. Now I hear people being like, oh, like Tehran is amazing. It solves all of the problems. So Milo, one one quick second. I just want to interject something because Chris made a statement, and for anyone under the age of forty five years old, a phone booth was a thing that you would go down to. There's a telephone on the wall, and you'd put a quarter into it, and you would be able to call people and then hang up and leave. I just want to make sure people understood what that was. But um, um, Tirana, Tirana, I. I've heard it's the new magic mouse trap. I have not personally used it yet. I know it operates in the five gigahertz spectrum. I know that, you know, a lot of the tricks you can do in five gig is not is not listen before transmit like Wi-Fi does, which m makes it seem like it's amazing technology. But I can't comment specifically on this particular implementation. I don't know, Milo, if you've used it or not. Yeah, I mean, I I, I know those guys really well, and yeah. I will just say uh, there's. Um, you will not find a company that has smarter folks on the fixed wireless side uh, than them. Uh, the work that they've done in beamforming and in interference cancellation and, and management is really very, very impressive. Um, and I should, if I might, Milo, just briefly, I mean, I'll just note. It is not them that I hear bragging about it. It's some of the fixed wireless operators who yeah. I feel like are driving the hype through anything that is reasonable. Whereas the folks at Toronto may be terrific. I'm not accusing them of overhyping their product. I think some of their customers might be overhyping what it can do. Well, I mean, so first off, you had, I think a lot of folks have built WISP uh, products out of basically sort of tweaked Wi-Fi radios. And, um, and when you operate with that, you're dealing with a certain set of limitations, but it's a great ecosystem from a cost basis and, and the rest. Um, these guys built uh, signal processing designed to do this with um, uh, MIMO and a whole set of uh, beamforming technology that has been maturing over over a uh, number of years. And um, it's 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 pretty impressive. Now, obviously, it depends on spectrum, depends on what you're what you're trying to do. Um, but you know, one of the differences in fixed and mobile, right, is you have many more degrees of freedom. You have uh, I'm not talking to an antenna that's this small, right, and I don't have a battery powered handset on the other side. I have AC power, um, and so and I don't have to deal. I have a much bigger aperture to work with, and so. There's a whole set of things that you can take advantage of. I think one of the questions has always been, can the 5G community take advantage of, money, of these things and sort of duplicate a highly optimized fixed wireless system? 
um, with maintaining full mobility uh, integration. And to date, I don't think that's the case, right? And again, it goes back to you got way more dollars per gigabyte for mobile service than you do for fixed. So, you know, it's like, what am I going to optimize for if I'm an MNO? Uh, but I do think that uh, the technology does enable, uh, you know, we've done a whole lot of work uh, on wireless. And, you know, I did a bunch of work on CBRS and, um, and the, that whole spectrum sharing model. And I think as more spectrum comes available, um, that is accessible to more people, you create opportunities for high-end technology to enter and solve some of these problems. And so the Toronto guys, I'll just say, you will not find a smarter group of people in that space. You know, I think, Chris, what we should really do, because I think this is going to be a reoccurring thing, maybe we should try to get our hands on some equipment and set it up and see how it works, because... We've been operating various five gigahertz platforms in the city here of Minneapolis for 20 years. And again, I always go back and say Ubiquity didn't do the industry any favor when they come out with $70 wireless products and everybody else, it's a race to the bottom. So it would be nice to see, you know, a properly engineered RF, you know, radio and client. But, that... but $70 uh, in a market, you know... I we were talking before the show, I've, I've done work with the United Nations on yeah. trying to bring connectivity in refugee camps in some of the really, you know, really sad parts of the, Africa. And, you know, $70 is a lot of money. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah. they're not, they're not capacity constrained, right? They, they don't have backhaul and a whole set of other dynamics there. So there are places for all of those kind of solutions. I think the question is really, what is your business model trying to optimize for? And mm -hmm. if not everybody optimizes for a high-end experience, and that's about competition, right? If you don't have anything, well, the the, and you can't afford much, well, yep. you it's, it's it's something. But when you're when you're trying to compete against fiber and Doxus networks, it's very challenging. When you're you know, you know, the guys are trying to do it. If you ever been to Wispapalooza, there's a lot of guys you know no. giving the old giving it the old college try. But it's, and, uh, and by the way, the WISP market is one of the few markets where you have an expanding number of players as yeah. opposed to a contracting number. So that makes it attractive from an equipment provider's perspective. Well, because... What's interesting, though, is to watch how many WISPs are just really trying to educate themselves and start to deploy fiber now. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. That's, did... that's very encouraging. I want yeah. to go back and I just want to say that, Travis, I, I think it's a, the, the idea you had there is terrific in that we should test out this equipment um, in the same way that like, you know, Steph Curry and I, like we could play basketball. Um, I'm, I'm down to help you with that, you know, but, um, but I think it's a great idea. I think, I think, you know, it would be interesting to, and I like to do this periodically every year. I have a whole warehouse full of every piece of wireless technology and just hang it up and see how it does, you know? And, and I don't know, Milo and Heather, you probably don't know my current stance on wireless is, is what I'm really fearing is 14 G. That's, I think, where it's really going to compete heavy with fiber. So since we're only at 5G today, I'd say we have some time. Well, um, you know, the nice, you know, people, I, I, I have been on the Hill and, and, um, and been asked the question. It's like, well, if the U.S. can't compete with China and others for 5G, why don't we just focus on 6G? And I'm like, well, if you don't have the fiber infrastructure to compete on 5G, you're not going to have. Right, the, right. No, it gets even worse at 6G when you go even higher up. I mean. You know, again, that DOD study we did said if you wanted to deliver 100 megabits 
to one user at Cell Edge using a 28 gigahertz spectrum uh, millimeter wave. And I wanted to cover, I think it was 72% of US population. How many base stations would it take to deliver that outdoor only? Assuming, cool. you know, it's not, you're not blocking it with your, you know, the phones are just suspended in midair because, you know, human beings tend to be, you know, bags water of water that are tend to be RF opaque. Well, can they basically cut all the trees down too? You know, that help? Yeah. You know, so, so then that number turned out to be 13 million base stations. Well, to give you an idea, in, 50, in 58 square miles, which is Minneapolis, I've got 2,600 base stations running. The fiber attached base stations run very well. The non-fiber attached base stations, they run great in the winter when there's no trees or leaves. Boy, come July, it's a challenge, let me tell you. Yeah. But And that's my whole point about why is the legislation favoring fiber? I mean, I and do I hear from a lot of people that are still concerned about 5G versus fiber? And I would say, I, I think we've won that war. No, you, 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 the question will be whether or not people can actually deliver solutions. And, you know, if you end up in a situation, uh, you know, um, things are going to change with the midterms. I think that's very clear. Um, I think you've got a solid legislative block who wants to see progress on rural broadband. But, you know, if, if two years go by and how many homes are actually lit? and delivering service is relatively small and programs are all having heavy cost overruns because of supply chain problems etc you could have a very bad outcome to this that will leave a bad taste in yeah that's, mouth that's what i not just that but i'll Heather, let me set you up because i think i'm going in, in a similar direction and that's that um this is where i think i i really fully disagree with Brendan Carr, um, although maybe he, um, FCC Commissioner Carr, uh, you know, he just came out and said it's a disaster if um, if we use rescue plan funds in any area where there's already some kind of service. And um, we actually just published uh, right before the show started my my response to that, which is in depth and and perhaps less ad hominem than people who know me might think. Um, but the um, the thing that I I think what you're just saying, Milo, is that people are seeing like, oh, like we're spending forty two billion dollars on broadband. Like this is exciting. Like like, you know, um, I, Mr. Cable Monopoly person, am going to get um, some relief. My prices are going to go down. I have new choices. And um, no, in fact, we're going to spend $42 billion on on fewer than 10 million households. Right. <laughs> like, you know, if well, the way I, things you know, could go. It would depend. Part of that goes back to mapping, right? And and one of the problems is the maps are notoriously bad, right? And, and, and you know, you get situations where, yeah, there's cable service available, but I have to spend 20,000 bucks to extend the loop up a long hill from the street. Well, is that really available in that area or not? Or I have cell services available, but it turns out there's a pocket because of a shadow that's not covered there, right? You know, getting atomic unit data in terms of real household data is a, is a challenge. And so let me, you know, let me so this is a this is a great but, question. I think for Heather, go ahead, and then I want to jump. I was just going to say nobody. Ex I mean, that's the biggest problem. I think is having to. Yes, we have to have the maps right, and that's a. But b, will they ever be right? And c, when are they going to deliver something? I think that's going to create some frustration too, Milo, because the maps aren't going to be ready in time to make much of 
like you said, two years from now, how many homes are going to be connected because we won't get the freaking maps minimum until the end of this year. And then everyone's going to challenge them. I mean, the smarter communities and states are the ones that are just saying, screw it, we're going to do our own mapping. This is I mean, where I think part I, of it, I just want to piggyback, you know, uh, you are not going to get perfect maps. So the question that you have to answer is, how do I want to deal with false positives, false negatives? If you say, I need to have maps that absolutely never cover someone who's already got the minimum connectivity, well, by to get that standard, you're going to have vast areas that will be of disconnected people that will be labeled connected. It's just not the fit, the physics of how people do the maps is, is not that good. So you're going to have to have some tolerance on both sides to get to something practical. But, you know, it goes back to what's the real data, right? Um, uh, that's, indicate. that's, I mean, I just, Milo, I love that. And that's one of the reasons I've always loved talking to you is that it, I, I think along similar lines, which is like, it's sort of like, I want to hit the bullseye perfectly. Okay, well, you're not going to do that. So yeah. where do you want to miss? <laughs> like, right. And that's the way I tend to approach these things. One of the things that um, a way of, of sort of asking this question is maybe we need to go a different direction. And I think um, um, Dane Jasper had made an interesting point, which was, you know, screw a lot of this stuff and let's, let's ignore wireless for a second. Let's get everyone who owns infrastructure and like in demand that they just share their marketing database. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a number of ways of 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 looking at that. I mean, I I think there's actually a lot of right away providers. Uh, what one of you know one of the things that's always fascinating to me is we are looking at this like we're going to build brand new infrastructure, but what what percentage of the house rural households that we're talking to are not grid connected? You know, very few. Right. So we have power infrastructure already runs to these places. So if, if, if it were me, you know, and I was a state PUC, I would say, hey, I want to see all that electrical infrastructure be able to be reutilized for running fiber on top of it. And by the way, you know, certainly medium voltage, you know, you have to be careful about, about this. But, you know, the utilities are one of the great underutilized right away um, assets uh, in this in this space that if you have them fully invested in, and and um, and engaged, uh, they could do amazing things, especially in rural because they already have the distribution, they already have rights of way, they already have control of 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 uh, uh, poles and a bunch of uh, stuff. Instead, if you're going to have to go out and and pull brand new poles, brand new routes, you know it's going to take you a lot more work. And so especially about you know, the interesting thing, Milo, in Virginia, of course, they have passed a lot of legislation that encourages the IOUs in particular to deploy, but more for middle mile, because then they require you to get a different um, last mile partner. And, you know, they, the, the IOUs aren't really that fascinated with becoming a last mile provider. So there hasn't been a lot of pushback on that, but I think you're right. I mean, they're sort they're building the fiber optic network anyway for their own use. So it's no big deal if you can incentivize them to also put on middle mile broadband. But then the question is, where do you find their partners and how do you incentivize that? So I, th I think you're right. I think we should be encouraging, but to your other point, the electric companies know where all those customers are. Exactly right. 
they could no, right, okay. they could give us much better maps than relying on AT and T or Comcast to give us the well, map. <laughs> it's funny you bring this up because I was just listening to a radio show the the other night, just driving, and people were complaining about, hey, they tried to get these four free kits, you know, test COVID test kits that the Biden guys just, just right. announced. And it's like they go in, sign up, and it says they've already been delivered. Well, it turns out that they didn't understand which addresses were apartment buildings and which ones weren't, right? And so if you're in an MDU, how do you get that right? The addresses are amazingly hard uh, to deal with. That's what I, I want to – this is a question for you, yeah. Milo, because there's very few people I could ask this question of that might have an answer. How the heck is it the federal government hasn't run into this problem before? How does it not, whether it's through the post office or another place, how is it not just put in the money to develop an appropriate fabric of where all the freaking domiciles are and whatnot, and just to have this available for various agencies? I got to think it would be useful for a lot of things. The, the post office actually has a pretty good uh, database of this, but but agencies tend not to cooperate with each other in this. You know, I, I, I've, I've dealt with people on the Hill and, and agency folks for a, for a long time. The, the, the Postmaster General has no performance goals linked to broadband. They're just not, that's not what he's measured by. Mm -hmm. The Department of Transportation has no performance goals or tasks that are, how do you support broadband? If, if you, if, you know, if you wanted to pass an interesting bill or just the executive order, right? Make every agency head have to talk every report three months on progress that what you have done to make resources available, rights of way, et cetera, to facilitate broadband deployment in the United States. And make that be something that's publicly yeah. reported every three months, right? Mm -hmm. Have you noticed every administration starts this interagency cooperation? I mean, I think under Trump, it was called the Bach. It's that unfortunate or what? But um, baseball fan, <laughs> you know, no, not that box like <laughs> an old Bell operating company, BOC box. Gotcha. Um, so I I agree with you. There's no there's the lack of cooperation between the different government agencies for a common goal is is really frustrating. It's, it's about coherence and and the you know look if it was important to the administration. They would they would make it be coherent. Well, look at all the different funding programs and how they lack coordination. Yeah. Well, so, some of that's statutory from the Hill, but I'm just saying if you just look at the executive branch, right? There's a lot of things that could be done to make things be coherent, not to have to build new rights of way, make federal buildings and spaces available for towers. I mean, there's just boatloads of stuff that you could go do. But the fact is nobody really cares about it. I want to I want to put an exclamation point on something. Travis, you leaned forward earlier. I think you might have a comment we want to get back to. But um, uh, Milo, you made a point about all of the electric infrastructure and the the different um, high voltage lines and things like that. There's another area in which it's really important to reuse infrastructure, and that's to avoid the delays of uh, in California of CEQA, nationally of NEPA, of the various environmental studies that have to be done in different circumstances. If you can reuse things without disturbing the ground, you often can bypass a lot of costs and delays. So that's another reason to try to reuse that stuff. Yeah, um, I would just say many of these regulations amount to a self-denial of service attack. Uh, you're basically putting in place processes that are designed to hose your ability to build. And there are consequences of that. 
And, and I actually think, you know, this is one of the areas where it will be fascinating to see if you could actually uh, in this com com build a competitive process where dollars would get awarded um, to states in priority order of where it's easier to build. You know, competition is a wonderful thing. And the federal government doesn't compete with anyone, but states do and cities do. And, and I, I would just... I love that idea. It's very difficult to measure. I'll just point out a lot of people suggest that Vermont's one of the worst places to do business, more independent businesses than any other place. <laughs> like, and so like, it also comes down to how we're going to measure um, ease of yeah, building and whatnot. Exactly. Travis, anything that you were going to, you remember the point that you were going to lean in five points ago? <laughs> oh, I don't, don't even, I, it, you know, I, I don't know the, the whole polls conversation. If you've ever actually tried to traverse a city block about, three different entities that own the polls and their inability to want any, a third provider to come on board. And then cities no longer wanting aerial networks because it blocks the sun. You know, it's um, that's why we ended up just deciding to do everything underground in the public right away. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of money. But at the end of the day, with the fiber infrastructure, I sleep really well at night with a very reliable, low latency, high quality product that's delivering to the customers. And you know, 50% market share is pretty easy to get. But I have a theory on the other 50% is by by taking 50% of the people off of the Comcast Doxus node in their neighborhood, the other 50% of people's experience is now just yeah, fine. True. So, so, so getting more, you know, we're making their network better by taking off the heavy users and then all the light users can can enjoy the network. Um, so, you know, the, to, to Milo's point, you know, eroding that extra, the other half of customers is, can be challenging. And Milo will appreciate that Travis suddenly found that near the airport, he had to figure out how to get a permit from the Air Force, uh, which he had no idea how to do. Well, you know, if you've ever built a network, you would be amazed in, a, in an NFL city like Minneapolis, how many different people own pieces of dirt. Right. I mean, just you drive down the road and there's seven different entities. Oh. So and again, one of the things, that, you know, you, one of the really interesting things for somebody to do would be to actually do an assessment that rank states in ease of build, right? Like there, at one point, Michigan had a single permitting location where you could go and file permits and it would, the state forced uh, everybody to deal with a coordinated permitting uh, process. Oh. Um, I think latter administrations change that uh but i Did think railroads because those are a real yeah yeah see this is the thing that people don't understand right about why right away is so painful but all of these things come from regulations that have established how the rights of way are administered and there are lots of ways to deal with this you could deal with it. I, I, i'll tell you what you want to hear a sad story so in the early days of fiber we had a city up here, I, I'll, I won't say which one it is, but we have one of the founders lived there. And they were doing a major sewer reconstruction project because they had to deal with, um, you know, a EPA rule about bad ties between your flood control system and the sewer. So they were redoing the sewer. And um, we were working with them to say, hey, why don't you pull fiber through through that same underground construction, right? Mm -hmm. City manager was off on vacation, came back and goes, we're not gonna do any of that. That's at ts job. It's not our city's job to do that. 
so this is the issue about coordination. There were seven, there were 700 cities that had to rebuild their sewers because of EPA rules. Um, and they were not allowed by the EPA to actually do joint builds with fiber because of a particular rule that said all the, the only things that those project monies could be expended on was the remediation of the problem as part of the settlement with the with the city and their boilerplate. They were not allowed to pull fiber. If you wanted to do that, you had to go reopen the ground again and pull the fiber again. You know, it's funny you say that. We, we tried to work the White House on this, and the White House was like, well, that's ridiculous. We should convince EPA not to do it. And then the only thing we I spent the next three years trying to figure out whether or not they had done it, because I just kept hearing conflicting things over whether or not EPA had fixed that. And then it's now, now it's a hot topic again, getting fiber in the sewer line. Well, I, I don't know if you have to get it in the sewer line, but at least if you're going to tear the ground open, you might as well allow mm -hmm. right. conduit right, in, right? right. But, so, that, but that extends out further. You know, if like you would you would assume when they reconstruct a street, that would be the ideal time to put conduit in the ground. It's actually the most challenging time to put conduit in the ground. Coordinating with the 50 other construction people, all the permitting departments at the city, all the city inspectors. It's just better to have them finish it and then come in after and do it. I disagree, I think Travis. It's better for them to do that a year before the ground is open. And so it's planned as part of the normal planning process. You are. Yep. You are. Right. Yeah. Right. And the alternative, so, I think. The irony is you just you would think that that's the ideal time to do it. Oh, it's 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 but terrible. It, it probably would be the ideal time for the city to do it which is in the middle of that. Travis, I understand that from your point of view, like your crews and everything else, you're trying to time it. It's it's a giant but, but, hassle. But to Milo's point, the city doesn't care. Well, that's, so cities that they, do they care really should be doing this. Like, care. You know, we I mean, care and the homeowners care. They really ups, They really get mad at the city when I call them the taxpayers. You know, the um, the homeowner, the taxpayers, when they're, because when they're, they want service, but the people in charge of putting the street down they don't even get along with the other department in the city, you know, the IT department or whoever yeah. else. So it's just, it's a big nightmare. No, I agree with you. And it varies from city to city. There are cities that have yeah. public works that are, that very much care about this. Right. That's totally right. And, 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 and by the way, that's one of the things that whatever is done with that NTIA is going to do or SEC, et cetera, you should reward cities that manage this process and mm -hmm. take advantage of this coherence. And make sure that, you know, if if you're going to prioritize where limited amounts of supply chain and fiber go, prioritize it to people who actually can do it efficiently. And if you can set up that kind of competitive dynamic, I think uh, you got a much better chance of success. But isn't, so this for, isn't this for small towns are actually easier to build these networks in? You know, let's just say Heather's the mayor, Milo's in charge of city council, and Chris is the, you know, the utility guy. Well, the four of us get together and we're like, yep, we do it and we move on. When right. you're dealing with an NFL-sized city, there's hundreds of people in the mix. Exactly. And, and they don't ever want to really, no one wants to say yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that that is a, a major factor in it. Uh, we're running... Um, uh, you know, to the point at which we're going to be taking a break. I do want to ask uh, uh, Heather and Milo. Um, uh, I'm curious if there's anything that I mean. Last year was full of surprises and challenges. Is there anything that really surprised you uh, in the broadband space? Um, perhaps something that gave you hope. So, like a positive surprise. But I'll take a negative surprise as well. Well, I think the positive surprise was that they actually sat past the infrastructure bill. I mean. Come on, how many years has it been since they've talked about it 
and haven't done anything. Um, you know, the fact that it got passed was the shock, I think, of the year. It was sort of forever. Um, that was a good surprise. And then the only, like I said earlier, the only other positive thing coming out of the pandemic is we no longer have to have any community do a feasibility study on whether they need or want fiber. They they know they want need and want fiber. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess from, from my perspective, I was a bit surprised by how much money was spent in the C-band auction, you know, something close to $90 billion. And, you know, one of the things I think you have to, many people tout that as a great success. Like, look at how much money you raised to the government. However, the government's running at, you know, like multi-trillion dollar deficits, right? And like, does 90 billion really matter in, in that space? And wouldn't it have been better if that $90 billion were used for funding backhaul base station sites and infrastructure actual deployment rather than paying for spectrum? So I think one of the tragic things is that a bunch of money got pushed into the government when that money would have been much better placed at actually building real infrastructure that delivers more bits to people instead of just coming into a um, government balance sheet that's already highly leveraged. That's a, it's an intriguing point. Let me ask how much of the, if we pass through $90 billion of savings to, let's just say the three biggest wireless companies, effectively T-Mobile, AT&T and, and Verizon, who I think spent the lion's share on that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, um, how much of that really results in significant savings versus sort of like um, uh, windfall benefits to investors and executive bonuses and things like that? Do you have a, do you have a sense? Well, I, I mean, I, again, I think the question would be, um, if if you're going to spend that money towards actually building infrastructure, right? Um, one of the challenges, you know, U.S. U.S. MNOs have wireless margins that are globe leading. You know, they're roughly in the 50% range, and most of the rest of the world's in the 25-30% range, right? So they're they're already highly profitable. The challenge is where is there going to be growth? You know, one of the really interesting things there's a if you look at census data. Um, household income adjusted for inflation over the last 20 years, median household income adjusted for inflation over the last 20 years by quintile, right? Like by by 20% segments. The top 20% did pretty well in the last 20 years. And the top 5% did extremely well. But the bottom sort of 80%, certainly the bottom 60%, basically it's flat. So you know, you're not going to get more ARPU out of people. It's the growth is all substitutionary. So where is that coming from? And that's part of the reason you see the MNOs doing flat rate pricing, you know, unlimited, right? Because they couldn't get you, you're not going to, people can't afford to pay more money uh, for that. So the question then goes back to, well, well, why should people up spend the money on, on uh, network upgrades? AT&T, I think, has decided to spend the money on giving you iPhone uh, subsidies because that locks customers in for 24 to 36 months if you spend and you know and you get a used iPhone back out of that is that a better return on capex than actually building network infrastructure so you know companies do what's financially what financially makes sense right. to them that's why their shareholders buy their stock and why they're paid uh, i don't think it's it's unreasonable at all. 
But you have to look at that and say, is this really the best way for the United States to compete globally uh, on an infrastructure basis? And are we going to develop the next set of mobile and fixed services that will go, will go through the rest of the world? Or will it be China that will be doing that? And we will be the laggard because of this uh, gap in infrastructure, both mobile and fixed. That's a, that's a question because 10 years ago, 10 out of the top 10 internet companies by revenue were all uh, American. Today, only six are American and four are Chinese. And the question will be, what does that look like in 10 years? And so mm -hmm. when we talk about infrastructure, it's really an enabler to the services that ride on top of it. That, and that's the part that I think is really important to be thinking through. Excellent. I, I desperately want to just want to do a show, Milo, and help you uh, have you help me assemble a guest list and be a part of talking about great power struggle, U.S. versus China. And um, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's tremendously important for the future of open society and whatnot. And uh, um, I appreciate uh, uh, how this how we touch on some of that in this conversation. Um, so with that, let me say, uh, thank you, uh, to Heather, uh, to Milo. Um, thank you again, Travis. Um, we have a show lined up next week with, um, um, Doug. I, I think he's going to be here from the beginning this time, uh, Kim McKinley. Um, and then after that, two weeks after that, we're going to be having on, um, two guests, um, um, uh, Bob uh, from Planet Fiber, I believe is the name of the company in New Jersey and, uh, Monica Webb from, uh, Ting, um, uh, to talk about, um, a variety of things, including scaling up, building more fiber in, a, in, in this current era, as well as some of the challenges around partnerships and thinking about that. So, um, Chris, one, one final thought. Yes. Just so you know, I'm going to be on the road for a month with my LTE service. So the odds of me participating will be spotty at best. Yeah. So. I just texted you to be like, we're going to do more of these shows. And you're like, yeah, thumbs up. Well, I, I, might have, I might find a pay somewhere that I can get, internet <laughs> because, um, you know, the uh, mobile internet over LTE, at least my experience is horrible. Mm -hmm. at All right. So. We're going to figure it out. Um, but, uh, thank you. Thank you all for joining us. Um, and, um, this has been another fun conversation on connect this. Mm -hmm.